0: Heavenly Father, our Lord explained to us that he spoke to the world in parables which would have a message for believers that would be concealed from others. Help us to hear again this familiar parable of the Good Shepherd, the Good Samaritan, again with believing hearts uh, as if it's for the first time. We ask this in the name of Jesus. An old Polish proverb puts it this way, not my circus, not my monkeys. In other words, it's not my problem, not my business. I don't want to get involved. Richmond, California, October 24th, 2009. It's prom night at the local high school gym a 15-year-old girl steps out with a classmate who invites her to join a group of young men drinking in a dark corner on campus. She has some brandy, maybe a little too much, but not so much that she's not smart enough to refuse the offer to have sex. After her refusal, she is beaten, and gang-raped for hours. At least two dozen witnesses observed the assault. Some of them grabbed their ubiquitous cell phones and took video of the assault. But none of them called 911 for over two hours. When the police finally arrived, they found her unconscious under a picnic table. She had to be airlifted to the local hospital in critical condition. One of the bystanders put it this way. They were kicking her in the head and they were beating her up, robbing her and ripping her clothes off. It's something you can't get out of your mind. I saw people, like, dehumanizing her. I saw some pretty crazy stuff. She was pretty quiet. I I thought she was dead for a minute. But then I I saw her moving around. I feel like I could have done something. But I, I don't feel like I have any responsibility. For what happened. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, verse 29. That'd be 869 in your red pew Bibles. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? I don't feel like I have any responsibility said the witness. In today's reading, an expert on Old Testament law had just finished testing Jesus by asking him, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? rumor was that Jesus was out to abolish the law and the prophets. He'd heard that Jesus could raise the dead to life Uh, like the widow of Nain's son or the daughter of Jairus. The Pharisees claimed that he got this power from a demonic source. And maybe he even heard it whispered that Jesus was saying that he was the way to eternal life. He himself, Jesus, the man. At any rate, Jesus refuses to take the bait, and he turns the question right back, volleys it right back to the lawyer and says, you're an expert on the law. What does the law say? And the lawyer has to admit, well, the law says that in order to inherit eternal life, what we have to do is love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. And Jesus simply affirms his answers. yep, yeah, that's right. You do that. Just do those simple things and you'll have eternal life. So at this point, the lawyer looks pretty stupid. He's just asked Jesus a question and he already knew the answer to the question. Um, So he tries to regain the moral high ground. Who, he asks, is my neighbor. Now see here, The man was desiring to justify himself. So you see, he has an ulterior motive. He wants to be held in high regard. He wants to look good. He probably hangs out with all the right kind of people. His kind of people. You know, rabbis, teachers, scribes, Pharisees, doctors of the law the upper crust. Jesus, on the other hand, has been known to hang around with some real lives fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, women of ill repute, scum. His question reveals his heart because, you see, if he can just define who his neighbor is, then simultaneously what he can do is define who his neighbor is not. Undoubtedly, he assumes, there are certainly some people who are definitely not his neighbor. Some scumbags that are unworthy of his love. Jesus, who knows the hearts of men, will have none of that. Sorry, President Trump, it's not possible to build a wall around my neighborhood, to keep out the great unwashed, to set limits on the love that God demands from my neighbor. But when does a stranger become my neighbor. In today's parable, the Lord identifies three indicators that tell us when a complete stranger has become my neighbor, when I'm duty-bound to love them as if they were me. When does a stranger become my neighbor? The first indicator that a stranger has become my neighbor is when he or she is in need of assistance. Verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The victim... No one in particular. He's every man. Let's call him John Doe. He's probably Jewish because he's going from Jerusalem, one Jewish town, to Jericho, another Jewish town. Now this road, I get to walk on it in a couple of weeks. This road is a rocky, barren, desert road that descends precipitously from Jerusalem 18 miles down the road to Jericho it drops 3,300 feet leaving the traveler exposed and yet there are plenty of caves nearby for brigands to hide in it was known to be dangerous so Jericho itself, it's a nice little town. It's on a level plain, the, the uh, Jordan River plain, surrounded by palm trees, warm in the winter, maybe a little too warm in the summer. Not a lot of people live there, mostly Levites and priests who would do temple service up in Jerusalem for a small part of the, of the year, but would live in Jericho, where it was a little more convenient and cheaper to live, sort of like living in the suburbs and commuting to the city. The main roads out of Jerusalem went north and south. The south road went through Bethlehem to Hebron and on to Egypt. The north road went to the hills of Benjamin And then you could either go to the west to the coastal plains or continue north through Samaria, the Valley of Jezreel, Galilee, and everywhere else that anyone would be interested in going. But this little treacherous side road from Jerusalem to Jericho got quite a bit more traffic than would be expected. That's because you could go north by going from Jericho up the Jordan River Valley and bypass Samaria. Why would anyone want to take that treacherous little road and bypass Samaria? It's sort of like going from here to St. Paul by way of St. Cloud. (laughs) Why would anyone do that? Well, 750 years earlier, when the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom of Israel, they deported all the Israelite inhabitants and resettled other foreigners into Samaria. These foreigners would become the ancestors of the New Testament Samarians. These people were the reason why when Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, he and his people had a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And relationships between the two groups had not sweetened over the subsequent centuries. So despite the hazards of this treacherous little road from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jews that wanted to go north would travel on it in order to avoid Samaria so they wouldn't have to breathe the same air as those stinking Samaritan scum. That's why people traveled on that road. They hated the Samarians that much. So John Doe is traveling on this treacherous road and he is attacked by robbers. They take his clothes. They take his food. They take his water. They take everything he has. They beat him, and they leave him there to die. This man is lying in a ditch, and he is in desperate straits. Imagine, the buzzards are circling. The hyenas yip as they get a little bit closer, gathering their courage to rip him to shreds. A wolf pack howls in the distance, if help doesn't arrive and soon, this man is a goner. This is a fellow desperately in need of a neighbor. When does a stranger become my neighbor? The first indicator is when he or she is in need of assistance. The second indicator that a stranger has become my neighbor is when I become aware of his need. Verse 31. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, And when he saw him, he had compassion. Notice that none of the three men who encountered this poor unfortunate soul were out there looking for him. They come upon him by chance. Now I hope you know that there really is no such thing as chance. What the world knows as serendipity, luck, good fortune, chance, we know is due to the sovereign will of the creator of the universe. God's control, his unseen hand over our circumstance, that's what we know as providence. It was providence that put Joseph in charge of the agriculture of Egypt. It was providence that summoned a whale to, sw- to swallow the prophet Jonah as he was thrown overboard, and providence that caused the same fish to spit him out on the land. Providence that called a worm to chew up the plant that had providentially sprung up to supply Jonah with shade. It was providence that made Esther the queen of Persia in time to providentially save her people from genocide. And so, well, one thing you might be saying is, well, wait a minute, this this is a parable. It's a story. There's no providence in a parable. I'll grant you that. But remember this. The teller of the story is the creator of history and the wielder of promise. So each man providentially comes across this man lying in a ditch. And each of them, it's very clear, sees the desperate situation that he's in and can recognize what's going to happen if no one stops to help him. Each incurs an obligation to help that man. That much is obvious to anybody. It's indisputable. So the first man that comes across him is a priest, a fellow Israelite, a Levite, a son of Aaron, like Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. He's probably just been working at his temple service that he does two weeks a year. Maybe, like Zechariah, He would have been selected by lot to offer incense at the altar of incense in front of the Holy of Holies and pray for his people. Surely this is a high likely candidate to help the man out. But you see, he passes by on the other side. He goes out of his way to avoid coming into contact with this poor man. Why doesn't he help? Who knows? Maybe he had pressing business in Jericho. Maybe he had a sick relative or his wife was pregnant. Likely, he was afraid that the brigands were still around and he himself was in danger of sharing the man's fate if he stopped to help him. Maybe he thought the guy was already dead And he was afraid that he might defile himself by touching a corpse, something forbidden to the sons of Aaron. But a quick investigation would surely have reassured him that the man was not quite dead yet. And surely as a priest, he should have been familiar with Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. It says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings if fear of ritual uncleanness was what was preventing this man from helping this poor unfortunate on the side of the road then clearly he's the epitome of what our lord was talking about when he said you will strain a gnat but swallow a camel he was willing to cast aside the second great commandment the center of of the law, he would cast it aside for a a, a ritual ordinance. The next man to come is another fellow Israelite, this time a Levite, not a member of the house of Aaron, not subject to these ritual requirements. You know, the Levites tended to be poor because they had no inheritance in the land. They were numbered by the Lord as particular objects of mercy, along with the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, and the Levite. Surely this poor man would recognize a fellow brother in need and want to help, but he too passes by on the other side. Why? I don't feel like I have any responsibility, said the witness. Helping this man might be hard. It might be dangerous. It's none of my business. I don't want to get involved. Finally, a Samaritan just happens along. Did I mention that relations between the Jews and the Samaritans were strained? Yeah. Um, Did I mention that most of the people traveling on this road would be traveling on this road in order to avoid Samaritans? probably the man lying on the side of the road wouldn't have given the Samaritan the time of day under ordinary circumstances. Well, about 200 years before Jesus told this story, when the Jews were being persecuted by Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek tyrant The Samaritans denied that they had anything to do with the Jews and they converted their temple to the worship of Zeus in order to avoid persecution. Fifty years later, the priest-king of the Jews, John Hyrcanus the Maccabean, demolished that temple. And about 20 years before Jesus told this tale, Josephus tells us that um, a number of Samaritans came up to the Jerusalem temple and defiled it during Passover by scattering human remains on it. You see, 20 years, think about that. How long has it been since 9-11? 16 years. How do you feel when you get on a plane and the pilot is a guy named Mohammed? Mohammed. little uneasy. The memory was pretty raw. Samaritans were not people that helped you. Samaritans were terrorists. Samaritans were the people that robbed you. So this Samaritan, of course, was a very unlikely source of help. He's more likely to loot around the area and make sure that the robbers haven't missed anything valuable. But... He doesn't pass him by. And our text tells us why. He was moved with compassion, pity, empathy. He felt what this man felt. He looked at this man and said, there but for the grace of God go I. And he was not willing to let him die there. When does a stranger become my neighbor? The second indicator that a stranger has become my neighbor is when I become aware of his need. The third indicator that a stranger has become my neighbor is when I am in a position to help. Verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan doesn't just have pity on the injured man. Compassion, love for a neighbor is more than a feeling. It manifests itself in action. First, he gives the man his time. Whatever plans the Samaritan had for that day, they were shot. He binds the man's wounds. What does he use to do that? Probably the shirt off his own back, leaving his own skin exposed to the hot Palestinian sun. He pours oil and wine on the man's wounds. What's he doing with oil and wine? He's probably a merchant, and this represents his livelihood that he's taking up to Jerusalem to sell. He puts the man on his own beast. So whatever the beast was carrying, that has to be left behind as well, probably more oil and wine. Can you imagine a truck driver emptying his cargo, leaving it at the side of the road to convert his truck into a makeshift ambulance? and help someone today. Trouble imagining that. Then he brings the man to an inn and takes care of him through the night, so he gives up the night's rest. And Finally, he turns to the innkeeper. Now this innkeeper is somebody that lives in Jerusalem or Jericho, whichever way the man went. So he's a fellow Israelite as well. Why doesn't he have compassion on the man? But the Samaritan doesn't rely on the compassion of others to take care of this man. He obligates himself. He pays two denarii. How much is that? That's two, days full, two full days' wages. Probably pay for him to stay at the inn for a couple of weeks. But not only that, he ob- obligates himself. He writes a blank check to the innkeeper and says, whatever it costs you to take care of this man, I will repay you on the way back. When does a stranger become my neighbor? A stranger becomes my neighbor when I am in a position to help. Being in a position to help means that you're able to do something. It doesn't mean that it's convenient. It doesn't mean that it's safe. It doesn't mean that it's going to be possible at no cost. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Not my circus, not my monkeys. That's what the world says. I didn't think I had any responsibility that's what the witness says. You go and do likewise. That's what the master says. Note how Jesus turns the lawyer's question on his head. Who is my neighbor? That, that was the lawyer's question. Who was a neighbor to the man? That's what the Lord asked the lawyer. Jesus isn't confused about the issue here. He turns the question on its head to make his point. The lawyer assumes there are limits to what can be demanded of me as a neighbor. He seeks boundaries because he desires to justify himself. He wants to put a check mark next to the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Met. Our Lord's point is this. Loving my neighbor as myself means I have to stop thinking so much about myself. I have to stop caring so much about justifying myself. I have to start seeing myself from the perspective of the ditch because that's the way Jesus sees it. If you want to know how jesus gauges the heart of a traveler you've got to see that heart from the perspective of the man suffering in a ditch you go out and do likewise says the lord maybe you're thinking wait a minute uh it's by grace we've been saved through faith and not by works so that none may boast Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's what Paul and Silas told the Philippian jailer. This command to act like the Good Samaritan, that sounds like works righteousness to me. Well, not quite. You see how Jesus puts it? A neighbor is not something I have. A neighbor is something I am. And if I'm a neighbor... I'm going to act like one. God Himself has become our neighbor. That's what we're celebrating this season. You can read it right there. Emmanuel, God with us. He has become our neighbor. That's the reason for the season. Our plight was far worse than this poor man dying on the Jericho Road because we were already dead in our trespass and sin. Our all-knowing God was aware of our plight. Our all-powerful God was in a position to help. The help that he supplied did not come cheap. It cost him the lifeblood of his only begotten son. Loving strangers the way I love myself isn't hard. It's impossible. At least with the heart that I was born with. As human beings... We don't live in a world that's full of Samaritans. We live in a good Samaritans. We live in a world that's full of lawyers seeking to justify themselves. We live in a world full of cell phones that are quick to press record and slow to press 911. We were created in the image and likeness of God. That image has been shattered. But it's not yet irretrievably broken. If you are not yet a Christian, if you're wondering, should I hand my life over to Jesus? Let me tell you, first of all, I'm glad you're here. We're glad you're here because there is still time left in 2017. Seize the day. Do not let the time slip through your hands. Redeem it. Because although following Jesus comes at a cost, it is worth it. Eternal life. Because if you're a Christian, you are being transformed into the image and likeness of his Son in a process called sanctification. And in it, we're being retooled into the image and the likeness of Jesus. One day, this world is going to be full of good Samaritans. May that day come soon. As we close, let me just leave you with a word from a man named Martin Niemoller. Martin was a pastor in Nazi Germany. And he said these words as he reflected back on his own failure to be a good neighbor, to be a good Samaritan. First, they came for the socialists. And I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists. And I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. And I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. Heavenly Father, our love for others often falls short of the example set by the Good Samaritan. Perhaps even on our best days, transform us into the image of your Son who was better than the good Samaritan, even on his worst day. We ask this with confidence in his name.